This episode of the Curious About Cannabis podcast is brought to you by you, our dedicated listeners and supporters. Thanks to your continued listening, sharing, and donations, we've been able to continue the show free from third-party advertisers and sponsors. So, thank you. And if you'd like to learn about other ways you can support the show, visit patreon.com slash curiousaboutcannabis. Hi, my name is Dr. Arno Hasekamp. I'm from the Netherlands, and I have been a cannabis researcher in the lab since uh, 2001. The Curious About Cannabis podcast is produced by Natural Learning Enterprises, a mission-driven company dedicated to enhancing critical thinking skills and public scientific literacy about life in the natural world. If you like Curious About Cannabis, consider checking out some of these other learning initiatives by Natural Learning Enterprises. Come on, Molly! It'll be an adventure! Phoebe called out as she followed Brother Toadstool. Brother Toadstool led Phoebe and Molly into a tunnel that went deep down into the ground. As they climbed into the tunnel, they found themselves getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Our new children's book, A Toadstool's Treasures, takes young readers on an adventure into the fun and fascinating world of fungi. Learn more and find mycology-related learning resources, games, and lesson plans for teachers and homeschooling families at toadstoolstreasures.com. Biodiversity loss due to habitat loss and fragmentation is rapidly increasing around the world with devastating consequences. Learn how you can help contribute to native habitat corridors in your community and reconnect with your wild neighbors at gardenwild.org. Oregon recently became the first state in the United States to legalize the medical use of psilocybin. As cities all over the country begin to decriminalize the use of entheogenic plants and fungi, it's time to have a serious discussion about psychedelics. The Serious About Psychedelics limited series podcast is coming soon. Learn more at SeriousAboutPsychedelics.com. You can learn more about Natural Learning Enterprises at NaturalEDU.com. And now, back to the show. Hey everybody, this is Jason Wilson with the Curious About Cannabis podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in once again. Uh, so today I am really, really stoked to finally be crossing paths with somebody whose work I've been studying for quite a long time and have wanted to talk to for ages. I'm here with Dr. Arno Hasekamp. Uh, Arno, thanks so much for being willing to come on the podcast today. Hey, Jason. Well, I guess we're both uh, curious about cannabis, so uh, <laughs> I like doing interviews and talk about this topic, so I'm happy you asked. Absolutely, yeah, and it's always fun uh, talking to fellow scientists, and, and one of the things that I'm interested to pick your brain about later in the conversation are um, some of the unique experiences that we have as, as scientists working in this interesting field. Um, and you've been at it a, quite a long time. Yeah, that's yeah, true. Uh, I started in uh, 2001, and, and we, we don't just uh, do the, the work in the lab. We also just uh, employees. We work for different companies and different bosses, so we also get to see uh, the cannabis industry from non-scientific angles. So I'm very excited to talk to you uh, 
about all these different things in the coming hour or so. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I've been at it for a while. I, I always tell people I was at the right time at the right place or the wrong place in the wrong time, whether <laughs> depending, depending on how you, on look, how you at look at it. it. <laughs> yeah, indeed. I, I was a biology student studying molecular biology. I thought it was the most amazing thing in the world until I realized that if you study it, that's one thing, but you probably also will have a job in it when you're done. And so when I got to the end of my studies, I suddenly realized like, wait a minute, I don't want to work in this field. <laughs> I just want to know how it, you know, how, how, how it, how it sticks together and, and what conclusions you can, you can, uh, you can take from, from all these exciting experiments, but to do it for a job, for a boss, for money, yeah. that's a different thing. So, um, yeah, I took a little break that summer and I, I looked around and I thought, okay, what do I care about? What do I want to find in my future job? And I decided it needs to be not just the lab part that I really enjoyed as part of my molecular biology education, but I also wanted to have a component that was socially relevant because yeah. my problem was that I thought I was doing great things in the lab with microbes and genes and and PCR techniques and pipettes, but nobody understood why. You know, that, uh, I was a genetic manipulator or a Frankenstein, <laughs> you know, and it was for fun. I know that, but even my mom didn't have the patience to really understand what I was doing day to day. And, and I just, I realized I missed that. I want to have a job yeah. where people want to hear what they can understand when they have it, it, even if it's a minimal amount, but they have some kind of an interest in it or they know something about it. So after this long summer break, I ended up in another department where they study the chemistry of medicinal plants mm -hmm. uh, in a nice word that's called pharmacognosy. Some people actually know that word and some people think I made it up, uh, but that's what it's called. And it's the study of plants as a source of new medication. So you can imagine that uh, after a few years in that field, working on hops for beer and on biofuel from algae and on healthier tomatoes and all kinds of chemicals extracted from plants, um, cannabis came up. So one day my professor came uh, into the lab and, and stood in front of me and said, hey, Arno, you're done with your master's looking for a PhD. You want to combine lab research with some social relevant aspects. So what about medicinal cannabis? So I looked at him with big eyes and I said, uh, but why? <laughs> what, what is this? Where did you get that? He said, well, the Dutch government has decided that they want to legalize cannabis as a medicine. You can already go to Dutch coffee shops and buy whatever you want there. And our current health minister doesn't think that it's responsible to do that. And she also recognizes that there's quite a few people doing that. So there's an actual health risk and there's an actual gain to be made. So she wants to uh, set up a program with a cultivator, a laboratory, a distributor, packager, all these different things. Um, and so we need a scientist. So how about you? So Holland and Canada became the first two countries that really organized this thing top to bottom. Um, and I've been at it ever since. Wow. And um, before we totally dive into the cannabis stuff, because I can't let you off the hook after mentioning some of your other work, uh, what was uh, what were some of the things that you were studying around hops? Well, that's interesting because, you know, people sometimes think that if something has been studied or not, it's a very black and white, right? We've studied right. it, so yeah. we know. We have not studied it, so we don't know. But the interesting thing, sometimes we've been doing things for a long, long time, and we still don't actually know how it works. Mm -hmm. And the funny thing about hops at that time is that there were six components. They're called iso-alpha acids. They're a little bit related. Of course, hops and cannabis are a little bit related. So these are also terpene-based compounds. And there's a bunch of six. 
um, that may or may not contribute to the taste of beer. They are very important. We know that because in hop extract that's used for beer, they're present. But they, uh, scientists had never been able to isolate them or to I even identify them in a, chromatogra a chromatography uh, lab. They couldn't be separated. So they were all bunched together as one. But mm -hmm. what if five of them were amazing for taste and one of them was really bad? Right. So the Heineken company, which is actually located quite near my house, mm -hmm. uh, like, like five kilometers away. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Uh, they wanted to know what if we take one out? What if we add one more? You know, does that do miraculous things for the taste, for the color, for the stability of beer? Uh, so it was our task to try to find out how do you pull them apart and how do you uh, create reasonable amounts for initially taste tests? Yeah. Uh, and I, I did not figure it out. It was actually one of my uh, one of my colleagues. Uh, he worked with cyclodextrins, which was mm -hmm. a exciting way of uh, of changing the solubility of a different kind of compounds. And by changing the solubility of those six components in a slightly different way, he was able to precip pre precipitate them uh, in different amounts. Uh, wow. and, and that's how he fixed the problem. I do not know how the taste test ended. And I never saw any products with uh, modified iso alpha acid components. So I think that it was a dead end road. Mm -hmm. But the challenge for the lab was great. And it, and it translates very well into some of the cannabis work because cannabis um, has some of these same problems where you have different isomers of different terpenes and things, and we don't necessarily know what's doing what or what's contributing significantly to certain smells versus others. The example oh, I often yep. use is like limonene. You know, yep. there, there are different forms of limonene, and one smells kind of piney, and one smells actually more like citrus. And... Um, so that's that's fascinating that that work really does directly uh, tie into, I imagine, because you focused on studying terpenes. Yeah, well, the thing, you know, with terpenes, I think for cannabinoids, the problem is not so great anymore because we've learned a lot and there's a lot of new techniques and, 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 and standards available. But the problem with terpenes is there's many, there's thousands yeah. and thousands of them. Um, and they all have, well, not all, but they have mostly the same molecular weight. Mm -hmm. So it's really difficult to identify them even, even with something uh, as modern as GCMS uh, with mass spectrometry, because not only their mass is the same, but also the fragmentation is the same. And then if you don't do a good separation, it's hard to say what's what. And I noticed that when I did some of my studies and I tried to make a, a clear list of all the terpenes I could identify in all the Bedrocan varieties, so that's mm -hmm. the Dutch cannabis grower uh, that I worked with for uh, for about ten years, uh, and I found out that what I identify as specific terpene, other authors that were also very respected in their fields, uh, they named them different. Not all of mm -hmm. them, but but some of them we didn't agree on, and some of them that they saw was a lot of I saw none of it in six different varieties. So it still remains to be seen who is right and who is wrong, but. Um, it all comes down to agreeing, and agreeing means standardization. So who, yeah. who who gets to make the final choice? And even if we're wrong, at least we're all wrong in the same way. So that still makes it better yeah. than what we're doing right now. At, at least we can talk the same vocabulary and compare data. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. We but in, indeed, with 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 hemp, uh, with uh, sorry, with hops. It was definitely twenty years ago. It was the same kind of questions. So you know. I always say whatever we do with cannabis, it's not rocket science and it's not new and it's not unique. Mm -hmm. It's just a combination of factors that makes it tough. But if the full force of 
science would have been released on cannabis 20 years ago, then there would have been no more mysteries by now. So uh, we're kind of lucky we still have the mysteries. <laughs> it's, it's true. Yeah, it's, it's, that's definitely true. It's, a, it's like a double-edged sword uh, 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 that, that research got so delayed. Well, I find it hard sometimes to explain to my clients, my consulting clients, but also the people I work with in academic settings, like, why does nobody agree? Like, why can't somebody figure out a method that works? And then I have to tell them, well, I think a lot of the methods work, mm -hmm. but they just don't agree with with the hundreds of steps that you have to take from beginning to end. Everybody makes yeah. different different choices. Yeah. Uh, and that, And that's... You know, it would be as strange as saying that when when you have a, an analog scale and a digital scale, and one of them says a kilo and the other one says a pound, that would be strange, and nobody would accept that. And a liter is a liter when, wherever you buy it. So why can't one percent of THC just be always be one percent? Uh, and and that is a tough one uh, to explain to non-lab people. <laughs> Sometimes even to lab people, I have noticed. Yeah, I mean, there's there's so many uh, factors that go into this. I mean, even if you had starting material that had been treated exactly the same, there are, uh, in the way that you prepare a sample in the lab, can affect, um, you know, when you're looking at things in such minor concentrations, um, it can really change things up. And then, like you said, the technology you use. Um, yeah. One thing that I've been suspicious about um, out here in the United States is uh, so many commercial cannabis testing labs offer terpene testing as a service, mm -hmm. um, but they're, all these labs are using different methods, different technologies. A lot of them these days are using um, Headspace GC, and usually Headspace GC with the mass spec um, detector, but um, I have, have a lot of doubts over the uh, how valid a lot of terpene data is that's floating around um, because they're so many variables and um it, it takes a lot of work to do yeah, yeah, terpene sure. testing right yeah. and, and that's not unique in, in the pharmaceutical industry there's yeah. a lot of testing going on that is really complex and can, can go many different ways so your results may not be be the same from lab to lab mm -hmm. but that's why we you know there's somebody in charge making the standardized methods that's one mm -hmm. thing and then parties accept that standard coming from yeah. the US pharmacopoeia or the or the European pharmacopoeia or other standards. And then the second thing is that you go in and you check if they actually do it. And that's called auditing. And I think both parts are not developed very well in the cannabis industry because the business came before scientists and, and regulators caught up. And then everybody already had bought their machine and invested in yep. their own favorite method. So now to, to make it similar, nobody wants to collaborate because you know, first of all, everything is intellectual property, so you're not going to share anything with your with your competitors, and and the regulatory like inspection system with audits with people who actually know what they're doing when they come to check you also doesn't exist because the doors are always closed. You know, nobody's supposed to know anything. Everything is covered with NDAs, uh, and that really has to change. So it's not just choosing the method, the methods for the many many things we want to do with cannabis, uh, but we also have to allow inspections. Yep. And that means Absolutely. that, that yeah, and at a government level, people have to be knowledgeable enough to not just know how you do it right, but also how you can cheat, right? Yep. So, so and I, I can see a chance now because the cannabis industry is shedding quite a bunch of people lately because it's mm -hmm. um, the market is not as as 
large and, and, and unstoppable as, as people are thinking. So a lot of former cannabis people, scientists, workers, they, they go back to the market. And I think governments should uh, snatch up some of those folks and, and then use them as auditors for this new, yeah. uh, new industry. Absolutely. And that's actually a very common practice. Um, like some of my background is specifically in quality management, internal auditing and external auditing. And that's, that's a lot of times that's what happens in natural products labs, environmental labs. Someone gets tired of the commercial work and then a lot of times they leave and become auditors or whatever because they've worked on the bench. They've worked in all these areas. And so now they're able to apply that understanding in a yep. way to, to hold people accountable. So I, I totally agree. Yep. And when your research with cannabis and when you first started working with Bedrocan, what did that early research look like? Because I know it evolved quite a lot. <clears throat> well, just imagine that you are hired to become a technician for Formula One racing cars. So you show up at work the first day and you're like, okay, give me a car and I'm going to fix it. And you go into the workshop and there's no tools. And then they say, oops, forgot to tell you, there is no tools. You got to make your tools first. So here's a workshop for tools. And then actually we don't have the raw materials, like the wood and the steel. So can you go and get that yourself too, please? So that's kind of what happened when I started to do my, my PhD, because we had a, a beautiful uh, uh, academic lab with, with like not just mine, but we had 10 floors of pharmaceutical research labs. So, and I, I knew a lot of people and professors. So if we didn't have the equipment, I could use it somewhere else. But the thing was, there was no choices made. There was only the idea of let's grow cannabis and give it to patients, but nobody had agreed on what method are we going to use? Uh, where do the standards come from? Uh, how do we package it? How do we, like, is there any shelf life known? What materials are even resistant to cannabis resin and stuff like that? So uh, how are patients supposed to use this stuff? Well, you know, we don't like smoking. So of course, in the medical system, you'll never promote smoking, but then what? Well, make tea or vaporize it. Well, what do we know about tea? What do we know about vaporizing? Well, nothing, but it's better than smoking, right? So I said, no, not if you're drinking disgusting green water with no active ingredients. You're just wasting your expensive <laughs> medicine. Yeah, well, that's true too. So I had to go completely to the basis. So that means isolate my own standards because I couldn't order them, then quantify my own standards. You know, purifying is one thing, chromatography. The second thing is to quantify them. Uh, and you cannot easily do that by weighing because they're sticky and syrupy. So I had to develop an NMR method to quantify it with an internal standard that was not a cannabinoid. Uh, then we had our, our cannabinoids and I had to learn how do they behave? What what kind of spectroscopic and chromatographic behavior do they have? So I had to summarize that. And then I had to move on to what's actually different between the varieties that we're growing here in Holland. Are they really that different or should they be more different? Uh, CBD wasn't even a question back then that came even later, but then you move on to administration forms. How do you make optimal cannabis tea uh, in a reproducible way where it's not suddenly way too strong when you forget about the boiling water for five minutes because the phone rings. What if in those five minutes your tea gets 10 times stronger? Then there's all kinds of patients around Holland that are suddenly fainting and falling off the stairs because they're super high, right? So, And we knew none of those things. Vaporizers, what's a good vaporizer? What's a not so good vaporizer? And how would you know? Uh, no standards for anything, no quality checks for anything. If you could make a vaporizer and bring it to the market, you just sold it, right? It's not really yeah. that much difference now. But then those things were new and, and we had no idea what kind of toxins or, or crap they were spitting out and, and what it even did to the cannabinoids. So my question was always, keep it simple, 
um, stick to the things that real people need to know now. No, no large academic studies just for your science buddies, but focus on what patients need to know today and try to set up the study and also write the results down in a in a in a article in such a way that everybody can understand, including yes. the patient you're doing it for. That's so I, critical. I, yeah, I, I call that National Geographic style, right? You you can't mm-hmm. you can't water down the science so much that it's not actually true anymore. It just sounds easy and nice, but it's not actually true because then you're misleading people. Yeah. Uh, and and you, I think you know, if you get data from people, you have to give it back to them. So um, I, I was interacting a lot with users and, and, and prescribers and patient organizations like, what are you dealing with? What does your life look like once you get that jar with cannabis and you go home? Then what? You know, where do you get stuck? What do you want to know? Uh, and that's been a, a very fruitful approach to my, uh, to my PhD thesis because then not only a bunch of scientists around the world, but basically everybody in my sphere of influence from from physicians to to patients to politicians to to family members they wanted to know how does this work because i can actually read this thesis and and know what it means so with that i reached my goal of not just uh, you know as a molecular biology just doing very fun yeah. stuff in the lab but also to have one leg in uh, in the real world and yep. and, and be understood <laughs> that's so um important and gets overlooked so often in the in academia and it's something that i've been uh speaking to a lot lately because it's it's very frustrating as an educator to recognize how many how much good information is out there really excellent papers really excellent books but they're written for their own colleagues not for a a general public and so then you often have people that try to take that and distill it but like you're saying oftentimes it gets oversimplified to the point that it's not accurate anymore and so it's i think it's really on us as scientists to take that responsibility when we write to try to find ways to keep things accurate and and concise and valuable to your colleagues but also valuable uh to the public at large um and it's 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 a big problem that we have as far as you know our scientific literacy rates around the world are, are not great um and a large part of that, I think, is because of this gap between um, scientists and the public at large. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, you can see that now during the whole COVID period that everybody thinks they're a scientist, but then when they cite what they think they know, it's not totally correct. But who am I as a scientist to correct that? Because if you do it too forcefully, then you come across as arrogant or a know-it-all. And and, and one of the topics in cannabis where I think that played the biggest role is the use of gamma radiation to to sterilize uh, the the mm-hmm. bio burden of cannabis. So any cannabis you grow, there's always going to be bugs on them. It's mm-hmm. impossible to grow it completely sterile. And there's numbers for that. There's maximum numbers. And if you go over that, then your batch cannot be approved. So you have to do something. And gamma radiation was the only method that theoretically worked. But in practice, it's true that you know that, that you could do more research into alternatives, uh, at least to see if things have changed over the last ten years or so, uh, because. A lot of patients don't like gamma radiation. They think of right. uh, the Hulk and, and, and Spider-Man and, and mutations and scary stuff and glow in the dark. And you can explain to them that gamma radiation doesn't do that, but it's so part of what people think that you can't change that opinion. So what I did is to, to I was the first one to say, well, if gamma radiation does destroy all the cannabinoids and the terpenes, which is what you often hear, then you can measure that. So. 
give me some 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 the same cannabis from the same batches and then half of it goes in the back into the gamma radiation facility like it always goes and the other half does not and then i just compare but i was also smart enough to know that if i only do some complex chemical tests people may not believe it so i wanted to have microscope pictures i wanted people sniff the cannabis and tell me if there was any difference and you know so it appeals yeah. to the scientist and it appeals to the to the general public so that hopefully it's such a convincing story that they say oh we thought that we knew something about gamma radiation and cannabis and we may still not like it that's your opinion you're free to have that feeling about it but it does not destroy cannabinoids and terpenes that's the end of the story and if you think it does then you have two options either you show where i'm wrong but i wrote it down in a very complete way so at least i'm not trying to keep anything obscure so point point out where where i have to do better or you as a scientist or an organization or LP or whoever, you do a study and you show it is bad. But then we have something to to talk about. And then what often happens is that such publications, they put an end to how far the discussion can go, right? Mm -hmm. It's like signposts. So if you stay within the posts, then it's scientifically shown that something's going on or not going on. And if you go outside that zone, you're free to go. But then I say, that's the twilight zone. That's that's for you. That's your opinion. And that's great, but I'm not going to follow you there because we're going to stay inside this this zone now where we have figured stuff out. And I found yeah. it very, very powerful. And, and I always compare that to the Mythbusters. They do that on TV. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yep. they're not judging judging the story like well that's crazy or that's that's totally amazing no they say well let's see <laughs> right yeah so exactly. you have a, a whole episode to sit back and, and watch them do stuff and figure it out and then when they draw a conclusion it's really hard to say well i just don't agree with the with the with the conclusion it's a stupid conclusion because you just saw 20 minutes on tv how they went about to to say it's black or white or or even gray but then how gray you know, you can measure stuff. So put a number on, on but then, uh, yeah, put a number on those discussions, uh, make it measurable, but that only works if people agree with the measurement, I think. That's the key. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And I mean, you're highlighting the critical aspect of, of science is that we work within these bounds so that we have common points of reference so that we can compare and so that we can be challenged. Like mm -hmm. you said, if you disagree, then come up with a better study design, uh, figure out some gaps in the variables I was measuring, whatever, and let's find ways to measure more things so that we can yeah. further the discussion. But there's one problem with cannabis, because usually that's right, you know, and standards will come floating to the top. Uh, I sometimes compare it to Betamax and VHS, right? It's not always the best technical standard. It also has to be practical, affordable, et cetera, et cetera. There's a little bit of lobbying involved. But what you see now is that because cannabis is such a different topic, it's kind of cool. It's kind of complex. Mm -hmm. It's a bit scary. It's, it's you know, it's just a high level topic. So what you see is that there is now interest in standardization, but there's a whole bunch of standardization institutes around the world. So, and I call that now the battle of the standardization institutes, because now all of them suddenly want to jump in cannabis. Yep. And now you have a battle between them. Like I'm going to save cannabis. No, I'm going to do it first. Well, I already have a lot of SOPs. Well, I'm already working on this international something, something discussion panel. So especially the last year or so, from the WHO to the UN to the FDA to the, the, the European Pharmacopeia, suddenly everybody wants to jump in and then say, okay, let's standardize. 
But now it's just the same discussion at a higher level because they still pick different things and different proof and different experts. So I think we're not done yet. <laughs> I, yeah, I totally agree. We've got to standardize the standardizers. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, indeed. It's it's the same game, but at a higher level with, with more yeah. experienced players. Yeah. Um, and so until then, and I think the best way to see it is looking at the CBD industry. Everybody's mm, yeah. doing whatever they want, you know, and sometimes it's uh, it's not even legal, but somewhere else it probably is legal. So you can always point somewhere else and say, well, they're doing it. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and as a result, we have a thousand products with a thousand different compositions and, and, and half of those products are not even, don't even contain what they claim. No, no. I mean... Yeah, ninety, what like ninety to ninety-five percent of them wouldn't meet good manufacturing practices, whether in the U.S. or um, you know European GMP standards. Um, yep. It's it's a it's I don't know. I think a lot of people in the industry think that when we talk about issues around product quality and standardization, that maybe we're blowing it out of proportion, because there's a presumption that cannabis is so safe that um, maybe those things don't matter as much. Um, oh, that's true. I have, on that? I have one great example of Simpson oil. So uh, Rick Simpson, a Canadian who had to flee to Croatia, I think, because otherwise he would be arrested under the, 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 the cannabis laws at that time. So he became a doctor, even though he's not a medical doctor, and he invented the concentrated extract with THC, which is called Simpson oil. So I did a bunch of tests on what is in Simpson oil because, you know, people talk about it and nobody seems to know what's in it, but it's miraculous. So it's miraculous, but nobody knows what's in it. Isn't that strange? Don't you want to know? Everybody said, yeah, of course I want to know, but how do I do that? Well, you work with a lab and, you know, I have one. So let me test a bunch of my own Simpson oil recipes that I found on the internet, but also take a few from actual patients because otherwise they tell me that I'm doing it wrong in my lab and everybody else is doing it right. And I found a ton of residual solvents in the way you make Simpson oil, which is theoretically very understandable. And I said, you know, some of these uh, uh, solvents, because, you know, normal patients in their in their regular homes don't have access to laboratory-grade, super clean uh, um, uh, solvents, so they may use the cheaper ones that are available, and I've heard some stories that they actually do. So they're they're taking really nasty solvents like like heptane and, and and pentane and stuff like that and chloroform. And then Rick Simpson said, or one of his uh, disciples said, well, Rick Simpson oil is so medicinal that it will instantly cure any problem that it may or may not cause because of those impurities. So basically cannabis is so medicinal, it can't do any wrong, right? If you just add a drop of cannabis to anything, it, it neutralizes it. So, and it's not really um, much different now with CBD. It's it's true, yeah. you know, and I still, I don't want to have an opinion about CBD oil or other products without knowing. So I did my own study, but I also saw lots of studies and other places. And of course, when you are one of the first people to publish on that topic, they always ask your opinion. So I, I'm reviewing these papers. I'm in some panels to discuss the results like the BBC in England. Um, and you see in every study done everywhere around the world, at least half the products, there's a major problem. Some of them contain no CBD at all. So that means you're either very clumsy and incapable or you're just around, you know, a straight uh, cheat and i yeah. think in both in both situations you should not mess with 
sick people, you know, go find another job. And I, I don't think that cannabis products should be over-regulated. I don't want it to become only a pharmaceutical product that only large pharmaceutical companies can deal with. I think that cannabis deserves better than that. Yeah. But that means that the industry has to do better, even if it's yeah. not mandatory, uh, because otherwise they're they're creating their own problems. And I think that's one of the reasons why there's going to be a discussion if CBD should become uh, uh, a narcotic uh, yeah. in December. So, and I think that's just a hard reset for an industry out of control that's not very willing to learn. And and to back up just a second, because I think a lot of our listeners in the United States are not aware that that's a discussion happening um, in other countries. So can you elaborate just a little bit more on what you just mentioned, that CBD may be deemed a narcotic soon? Yeah, I'm not so much into it. And I, I am also also just looking at some news on my LinkedIn and, and, and sometimes I get an email about it and it's not my core business. But yeah. uh, if I'm saying this correctly, at the UN level, there's going to be a discussion in December on multiple cannabis-related topics like rescheduling, making it available for medicine, etc. But one of them is about CBD. How do we regulate CBD and, and preferably in the same way all around the world? Uh, and one of the votes, one of the five topics that are uh, um, are going to be voted on is to make CBD a, a scheduled uh, compound. Just put it on a narcotic control so that everybody has to stop doing whatever they're doing, which probably means that governments have full control over CBD again, and they can allow specific groups, specific companies and organizations to bring it to the market. But then the whole uh, process has to start again. I, yeah. I think that the CBD industry has gone so much out of control because now it's available for pets, for people with cancer, for young people with epilepsy, for people who are dying, for everyone. And it never hurts. It can only do good. And that is, of course, clear nonsense because it can do bad, mm -hmm. not maybe because of the CBD itself, but because the other stuff that is in there as well, right. even up to the point of, of added synthetic hard drugs, because then at least your CBD product does something, right? If you want to sleep, I'll make you sleep. These things right. are really happening. They're finding fentanyl in some of these uh, products. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Synthetic cannabinoids and, and all kinds of things, residual solvents, uh, polyaromatic carbohydrates, uh, hydrocarbons, and heavy metals. You know, it's a little bit of this and a little bit of that, but altogether, this is an industry that wants to grow really bad and uh, really badly, uh, really quick, uh, and and they just won't be stopped. And and I can see that if I if I look at the kind of people that I meet, sometimes they say, well, you know, in my previous life, I sold uh, tennis balls from China, but that's not a great market anymore. So now I'm going to go into CBD oil. I want to help the kids, you know. And that is sometimes so shocking that I I think yeah. something does need to be done. And I don't want cannabis to be overregulated. Uh, because of its history and because of the appeal to regular people and you can actually be involved with your own medicine but it's the business aspect you know the billionaire investors and the and the microsoft people and the it's become just a trading vehicle a lot of the people that are now in the cannabis industry they don't care about cannabis it's just something to trade um and and that i think that's reaching its limits you can see that on the on the stock markets, you know, the, the stock market value of a lot of these companies is going down. They've become too big, too quick. They can't manage it. And the market isn't actually there. And even if the market is there and you have 10,000 competitors, then you have a bigger cake, but a smaller piece. Uh, and I think so we're learning a lot of lessons uh, and, and standardization discussions and quality standards 
are there for a reason, but also that needs to be explained to consumers. Like, what are we trying to fix here? What's the problem? And why is that a problem for you? Yes, yeah. And it's an extension of a problem that has already existed for, and some people hearing me talk about this are like, oh God, he's about to go on his natural products industry rant again. But <laughs> um, this is a problem that already exists in the natural products industry and that we've been trying to overcome with dietary supplements and other things is that, you know, it's it's great to empower people to have access to herbal extracts and things to handle their health however they want. But those products need to be of a known quality. They need to be of a known purity. I mean, it's you. Unfortunately, we can't trust people to. It's human watch nature. Out. Right? Yeah, and the same happens with cars. You know, there's this whole yep. Volkswagen scandal, and a lot of other car makers too. They put software in there so that you're being cheated on the performance of the car. So it's not just related to to yeah. herbal medicines or pharma yeah. products or anything. But I, I heard an example from the Food and Drug Administration here in Holland. Uh, and they said, you know, this is not unique to cannabis. This happens all the time. Remember when goji ber berries mm -hmm. didn't exist and then suddenly they did and everybody wanted them because they were superfoods? That means that somebody in Nepal, where they are grown, thought, hey, my goji berries go from one cent a kilo to much more. Mm -hmm. I need to grow more. So what we saw was a huge increase in pesticides in goji berries. So now we have a superfood, but because of the market, because of the demand, you can't afford to lose one single berry anymore because it's worth a lot of money for those people who grow it. So pesticides. So this is just how, how humans work. This is how business yeah. works, you know, and it's nobody's particular fault, I'm sure. But you just need to put up barriers and therefore check systems, which involves labs, to make the invisible visible. That's how I always explain. A lab makes invisible stuff visible. You can't taste heavy metals. You can't see THC and you can't smell uh, pesticides. You know, there's nothing to see. You need a lab to tell you what's what. Um, and otherwise, things go unnoticed. Yeah. And I've, I've dealt with patients who, who said that they've they're sleeping better than they've ever done in their life because of their CBD product. And it turns out that there's no CBD. And then when I go look with them, like, but what, what did you do? Where did your CBD go? It turns out that they're just not really good at calculations. So they, they, they diluted their product 1000 times too much or something crazy. So there, yeah, there is no CBD. Yeah. You made it this way. Oh, but I sleep really well. <laughs> so how does that work? So, you know, there's a whole edge of, placebo effect of wanting something to happen and it's still a little bit exciting it's still a little bit naughty in some places and that adds to the myth so yeah. in that aspect i don't think cannabis, cannabis resembles anything else today mm -hmm. uh, and we just have to learn how to be more normal about it and more responsible yeah absolutely and and that is the really hard thing to tease out especially with cannabis and how popular it is and, and how big the mythos is around it is how do you distinguish these placebo effects, specifically given the lack of uh, clinical research with herbal cannabis or cannabis products that people are typically using, which transitions into something I wanted to talk to you about, because you've authored several papers where you've reviewed the current uh, sort of landscape of clinical research. Yeah, it's uh, time for another right. one. <laughs> it is. It is. Yeah, I think your, your last one went up to like 2014. So yeah, it's time to time yeah. to renew. But um, what did you learn when you dove into all of these studies to try to see, well, what human clinical data actually exists for cannabis? Um, what did you learn through through that process? 
Well, that not it's not only CBD producers or consumers that do clumsy things or draw conclusions that are not supported by their own observations yeah. because it happened once doesn't mean it's a rule. But what I learned is that a lot of clinical trials are done in a pretty sloppy way too. They're too small. They don't address the real problem. Uh, they're using cannabis that nobody else can use and it's not even medicinal grade. Huh? Mm -hmm. There's a the famous example in the US, of course, is you can only use NIDA supplied cannabis, yeah. which is very very weak, not very potent, and it's very dry. And, and some people have compared it to pig food. I've been in one conference of patients out of time where they took one of those jars. There's only four patients, maybe less yeah. now, in the whole US that are alive and are using that material. And they were brave enough to bring their new sealed canister to the conference and open it in front of cameras. And it, it's horrible, mm -hmm. you know? So, and that is the only stuff you can use in clinical trials. So whatever clinical trial you do, it's not going to find what the person on the street has told you that it works for. So this is something that it, it's hard to change. Um, you can't smoke in clinical trials because it's going to be really hard to defend. But I'm always looking for what, what can you do? Who can do this stuff? Mm -hmm. um, so so one of the fun things I've done as a, as a, when I was working for Bedrican and I heard a, a, a clinical researcher from Switzerland complain that he wanted to do a study in Switzerland, but the only legal source he could use was NIDA because that's the only like government sanctioned supply in the world. I said, but I can make that for you. What do you want? He said, well, I need specifically what they provide because that's what I've used before. So I can't suddenly change. So I need exactly 7% THC in pre-rolled cigarettes of a certain weight. I said, I can do that. Mm -hmm. What if I just take a strong cannabis and a weaker cannabis and I mix them until they're 7%. Right. So I did that for him and he was extremely happy. He said, yes, this is more realistic cannabis. It's more moist. It has terpenes. This is what people would want to use if they're patients. And actually it's bedroom material. So actual people are already using it. So, you know, you have to, and, and it's another lesson of where scientists can can forget that they're part of the real world and that they can put a lot of effort in doing the study because then they score another publication, but they don't help anyone because they've just clinically proven that cannabis does not work for chronic pain. If you're a regulator, that's what you see. This is the only study on smoke cannabis and pain, and it says no. And then the scientist said, yeah, oh, but excuse me, you know, there's a footnote says that this was not mm -hmm. a very, no, no, don't want to hear that. It says no. So it's scientifically proven cannabis does not work for chronic pain. So stop whining about it. You know, those are the real world consequences. And I think you can do better. Uh, so, so that's why I worked on the Volcano vaporizer as a medical device on creating a placebo cannabis for for clinical studies to to bring different varieties uh, in, into clinical trials to compare with each other a little bit sativa a little bit indica a little bit cbd a little bit thc um, because scientists often think yeah there's cannabis and then you just test it right cannabis is cannabis <laughs> cannabis is cannabis yeah what's the big deal yeah. I think there's not as much nuance as some people like to believe that there's thousands and thousands of mm -hmm. unique strains, but there's also not just one. There, there's a bunch and we need to know how much. And that's when, you know, maybe you can cluster them and you can give them a, a, like a letter or a number, cluster A, cluster B. But, you know, we need to tidy this up because nobody is benefiting from 10,000 different strains. It's too complex. Yeah, and it's it's very confusing and potentially detrimental to consumers, especially medical focus. You know, patients that are are looking for um, for relief, having all of these names and descriptions when really there might not be that much difference between you know uh, a large percentage, which 
this relates to one of the other big topics I wanted to talk about, which is the concept of chemovar. So a lot of your, uh, some of your work focused on, like you said early on, you you were looking at this, these cannabis materials, seeing how they were different, and eventually your research started to move into the area of, okay, the, the cannabinoids are roughly the same, but there's still differences. Maybe it's the terpenes. So can you speak a little bit to that research, how that evolved, and where this concept of a chemovar came about? Yeah, actually, there was, it was a very fun project to show how nobody needs to lose, right? It's not the scientists are right or the people who, who have used it for 20 years are right and, and the scientists don't know anything. This was a great way to show everybody has a piece of the puzzle. So yeah. what I realized that everybody talks about varieties and, and even Bedrocan had varieties, a little bit more of this, a little bit less of that. But my question was, well, how do you define a variety? Because if we have five products and people say, well, your 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 selection is not complete. You need a sixth one. Then what is going to be that sixth one? Based on what? Based on what we think is cool that year or based on CBD that just happens to be popular? But we already have some CBD. So if you have a weaker CBD strain, why don't you just use more? Why would we have to create a new product with more CBD? Because that's the same as saying, well, I don't like 100 milligram tablets of, of aspirin because I need to take two. I want to have one of 200 and that's completely different. Then everybody will roll their eyes and say no they're not you just have to swallow twice instead of once but it's the same so but how do you do that when there's potentially many many different components uh, so i decided to start with something that everybody seems to agree on that there's sativa and there's indica mm -hmm. that is like the highest level of distinction in cannabis like if you have to make one cut in the whole group you'll say sativa indica that's that that's for real that's for sure that exists and i thought well if that's true once again, you must be able to measure something. And if it's yeah. like in a compound that is 0.01% versus 0.02, then I don't believe that can be the one. That must be such a potent compound, then we would have known something about that compound by now. So it must be in the cannabinoids and or the terpenes. That's the only way. That, that explains 95% of what we know about cannabis right now. So what if I go out and I buy, get, grow as many sativa and indica extremes as I can. So there's the coffee shops in Holland, which I had access to. There's the Bedrocan collection, both of mm -hmm. products that they had already in the pharmacy and things that were under development. And there's all kinds of other scientific connections and and and, and research licensed uh, um, uh, organizations that I, that I know. So I was able to get 460 different samples and I analyzed them all for the complete cannabinoid and terpene profile. Even if I didn't know what terpene it was, I just call it number one, number two, number sure, 16. Yeah. doesn't matter, right? Because number 16 is always number 16 and number 21 is always number 21. Uh, and if there's not a difference, then I don't know, have to, have to know what they are because they're apparently not important. So why am I <laughs> wasting my time? So you basically subtract things. You look at the sativas and the indicas, look at the cannabinoids, no difference. And that was interesting because a lot of people said at that time that it must be the CBD in the mm -hmm. indica because CBD is relaxing and indica is relaxing too. So therefore, without ever having seen the inside of a lab or having done any tests, it's super logical that CBD must be higher in indica and therefore THC is probably lower. So everybody had an explanation, but nobody had really actually put it to the test. So when I did that, I saw no difference because they're yeah. both drug cultivars. So, you know, humans want it to be high and, and high we will become because we pumped them up to about 15 to 20% THC and the CBD got lost in the process. So, but when I looked at the terpenes, 
of course, you're looking for individual components. And you say, well, if this component is there, eumeline, uh, terpinoline, uh, limonene, whatever you want, if that's there, it must be a sativa or an indica. But I couldn't see that pattern. You know, I'm not just looking at peaks and trying to draw conclusions. I was using statistical programs called principal component analysis or, yeah. or cluster analysis. And it's a very powerful tool to show patterns in huge data sets. So don't forget that I had 460 samples times 44 peaks, <laughs> and sometimes even more. So that's tens of thousands of data points and you can't project it on the wall and hope you see a pattern. So the statistics told me there are certain specific terpenes associated with the indica type, but not just one or two, it was a bunch. And actually mm -hmm. after I came back from lunch, I stared at my paper with terpenes again and I realized, wait a minute, all these terpenes, they're ending with all. Mm -hmm. That means they're yeah. alcoholic terpenes. Uh, cineol and terpenol and, and linolol and stuff like that. So I thought, wait a minute, does that mean that the hydroxylated forms of these terpenes are linked to indica? But where do they come from? Is that an enzymatic thing? Is that an right. environmental thing that where they first are formed and then they're, they're uh, oxidated? So does one of them have more antioxidants than the other? And then I realized that these compounds aren't made in isolation, they're made in pathways. So that means that maybe an entire branch of this pathway, controlled by maybe one or two genes or precursors, are on or off. So I was looking at individual components, but I had to look at branches, right? Mm -hmm. So that's when I realized, like, okay, so if there are hydroxylated terpenes linked, they're much more present in the indica type, why does the plant look different? What, what the hell does it have to do with the plant shape? So I looked on and I realized, I, I found that same day that there's a particular type of plant hormones, uh, gibberellic acids, they are made from terpenes. So either yep. they compete for the same precursors or they're, they're, they're boosting each other. But that's when I found for the first time a, a, a chemical functional link between the chemical profile of the terpenes and therefore smell and taste and, and effect, modulating effect on the cannabinoids versus what it does to the plant shape, the stretching of the of the of the stems and the so the skinniness or the or the the the, the, the fatness of the of the flower, etc. Um, and I was not able, my lab was not capable of testing and analyzing those gibberellic acids because they are present in minute amounts and you need to be very specialized. So I never pursued that, but I think that's where the link is. So now, even though it's complex, you can still measure a complex pattern and you can still say, well, this falls into the indica or the sativa grouping. But the yeah. explanation, yeah, you basically need to have a show and tell for about 10 minutes before, before people mm -hmm. say, oh, I think I just did that <laughs> five to 10 minutes. But it's not simple, but it doesn't mean you can't do it. But that's when it becomes science and that's when it becomes a lab job. And I think that in the future, hopefully, instead of saying there's there's thousand different varieties, so just start with number one and, and you know, we'll see you when you hit number 1000 and then you can tell me which one you like. I think based on this new knowledge, you can group them without any hard borders saying this is group A, this is group B. You have to do some negotiation and some some talking about it. But wouldn't it be nice if you have 10 main clusters? One right. mostly for pain, one mostly for sleep, and another one mostly for MS. You know, then everybody knows what they're selling and everybody knows much, much clearer what they're using. So that's yeah. when we went from cultivar to chemovar. Well, and that's uh, such an interesting um, proposal that, that the plant hormones are 
are competing for aspects of these biosynthetic pathways that that might be uh, resulting in these alcohol terpenes. And what's hard it's hard to talk about this stuff sometimes um, to broad audiences because you sort of have to go in a weird spiral where you first say, okay, the way you think about indica and sativa is not exactly right um, in that the terms are used inconsistently and you may not be able to trust them. And then people get mad at you. And then you say, but there are patterns. There are biochemical patterns. Well, well you know, what I what I found is a powerful way to 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 build that bridge again is, is large groups of people, they know how to observe. If 100 people yeah. tell me they saw something, something happened, they saw a UFO, I'm sure there was something in the sky. But when they explain it with the knowledge and, and, uh, and the tools they have, they're often wrong because they use whatever they know, what they happen right. to know. Sometimes that's an old book about cannabis from the 70s or something they read on the internet. So I'm always trying to tell them your observation is correct. Same with sativa indica. It's an actual thing. But what you thought it was, it's more interesting than that. Shall I, shall I yeah. tell you what it really is? And, and I told you that nobody has to lose. And it was actually proven in the Dutch system because Bedrican was asked by, by patient organizations, uh, you know, the, 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 there's always a few patients who are more vocal and they know what they're talking about and they know what they're trying to say, but they just don't have the scientific vocabulary. And they said, you know, you have only sativa strains and that makes me hyper. You know, they're uppers, they're, they're energizers and I want to sleep. I want to calm down. I have ADHD. I have sleeping problems. So your products can't work for me. So the thing is that in words, they were they would never be able to tell me what I needed to develop next. And, and I don't yeah. want them to just bring in a strain from the coffee shop and say, here, grow this, because that's not scientific enough for us. So yeah. when we realized that the difference between sativa and indica can be mapped, what we did is we took those those samples, those, those the wide variety of samples that we now have access to, uh, and we knew what they were because we had background information about the street name and the supplier mm -hmm. and the seeds and stuff like that. So we mapped the existing Bedrican varieties on that plot. So it's a two-dimensional mm -hmm. plot with all kinds of dots on it. And all those yep. dots were the different types that we measured. And then we plotted the Bedrican strains on them. And we saw that there were two major regions that were like on a map, we, we were not occupying them with a the product. There was nothing there to fill that gap. One of those clusters was a mess. It was all kinds of stuff mixed up. But the other one was all amnesia hay samples because they happen to be very popular in Dutch coffee shops. So you see a lot of different types of amnesia haze from different sources. And they were not occupied. Well, that amnesia haze was a uh, indica type of variety uh, that we had access to. So we picked one of the plants that we had already in our collection and we grew that to be the next product. And then there was a very exciting moment where we presented that product to that group of patients and say, is this what you asked for? And they said, wow, yeah, that's it. Wow, nice. So, so you know, we, they were right by just smelling and, and, and sniffing and tasting and trying and smoking and talking about it. They knew what was you know, where they wanted to go. And through science, we could put numbers on it. And then in the end, those two totally came together. So that was very exciting. And, and, and then you can share the whole story with the patients. The patients were, I think, even allowed to name the new variety uh, okay. or at least to be involved in that. Uh, so they, they helped. They really helped. And it was one of the best presentations I ever gave at a conference because that was 
like literally half like one foot in society and one foot in the lab and then you come up with one solution so it's yeah, a great example that's, that's exactly that's what exactly what i was going to say it's a beautiful example of how science and and the public can work together to enhance each other's work you know you know trying to get on a, a similar footing as far as the vocabulary you're using and trying to keep an open mind to really understand and hear each other um <laughs> Well, another example uh, is is raw juicing. I remember raw juicing mm. became popular, and I happened to be in California around that time because I had a uh, my, my girlfriend was there for study. Um, mm. So I heard about raw juicing, and of course, it was immediately associated with healthy hippies from California. Of course, they want to juice everything, and it has to be raw because then you live longer, and there's no toxins. But as a, so, so my colleagues were laughing about that, like, "Oh yeah, great!" And it tastes horrible, so you have to add all kinds of superfoods. So you know, one smoothie costs twenty-five bucks. But what I heard as a chemist was raw juicing, raw smoothie, raw, no heating. Mm. These people are not smoking, they're not vaporizing, uh, they're not baking any cookies, they're not making any heated oils, they're eating it raw. So they're, they're eating the acidic cannabinoids. Yep. That is interesting because nobody does that. So why are they doing that? They're not doing it for the taste, I'm sure, and not because they actually want to be super happy with the minerals and the enzymes or whatever. But even if they do, what wouldn't it be cool if you find out that all the raw juice drinkers they let's say 90 percent of them has a specific disease like irritable bowel syndrome then have you just discovered in the wild like an anthropologist could do in the rainforest of brazil you made the link between irritable bowel syndrome and thc acid right well that is worth you know getting out of the lab for and looking around with your chemical x-ray glasses to see what are people what not what are, not what are they talking about but what is actually chemically happening. Uh, and I found that if you go around the world in that way, then a lot of crazy stories are true and a lot of true sounding stories are crazy. And then we're back at the Midbusters, <laughs> you know, because some, some very plausible things turn out to be totally impossible and the other way around. And, and that's what makes this fun. And I think that's how you should employ uh, a lab. Yeah, exactly. And and part of what you're describing and something I talk about a lot here with the, the concept of curious about cannabis, it's about questions. And it's about uh, when you have that kind of perspective, you're able to identify better questions to ask, which I think is really yeah. one of the, the keys to to science and, and understanding is you've, you start out sometimes asking ridiculous questions because you've got to start somewhere. And yep. as you learn and share information, your questions get better and better and better until you start to really touch at the core concepts that you didn't originally understand. Yep. Yeah, one, one good example is clinical trials. You know, a lot of people in the world are, are, are kicking and screaming that there must be clinical trials because otherwise, uh, you know, we are completely unhinged and we don't know what they're doing. It could be dangerous. But clinical trials are difficult. They're expensive. They, you know, usually the, the, the results are owned by someone that doesn't want it to share it with everyone. And my idea is, well, if we want clinical trials, but we just can't have them, period, not right now, it's going to take years. Why don't we do the second best thing? And why don't we ask tons and tons of people really smart questions mm -hmm. in a survey which is already being done around the world, but there's always one thing missing. And that's because 
there's a bunch of scientists they're doing the surveys but they don't touch the cannabis supply and there's other researchers around the world i know one in, in israel for example they look at the samples that are going around but they never talk to the people and what if you can talk to 10,000 or even maybe 100,000 people that are consuming cannabis for health and at the end of this really good survey you say okay can i now have a sample of whatever you are using yeah I don't care if it's illegal or not. That's not my job. I'm a scientist. You know, I'm not the police. And I know this is hard to do in real life, but there's always places, countries, conditions mm -hmm. that you can do it. So now I have your answers about what it does and what it doesn't do to you. Now can I link it to your chemical profile in the product that you're using? And I don't care where you get it from, from this supplier, that supplier, you grow it yourself because I'm just finding the pattern. And I can guarantee if you do that, just like with Sativa and Indica, you'll find a pattern and you'll, you'll understand why certain components are linked with a better outcome for MS, sleep, uh, cancer, or irritable bowel syndrome. And then you can switch it around and say, well, from all the hundreds of possibilities that we could have studied and wasted a lot of time and money, now we have narrowed it down to a few probably winning combinations. So now let's get that proof. Yep. And you don't waste time and effort and, and, and uh, because ac academic time is worth money too, right? Absolutely. Uh, you have yeah. to score, you have to publish. So you don't want to publish a clinical trial that didn't work. Yep. Nobody needs to see that. So narrow it down with real life data. But that means that actual scientists, this is not just a regulatory problem. That means that actual scientists have to come out of their ivory towers and interact yeah. with actual people. Those are not just your guinea pigs numbered one to a hundred. Those are people with knowledge. They know something yep. you don't know and you know something that they don't know. So now let's work together. And that's a kind of a cultural gap that I found is difficult to, to force. You need some time. Yep. Yeah. It's it's a nuanced thing. It takes some finesse to to really work out. Um, but you're you're absolutely right. And something that my mentor and I used to talk about a lot in the lab <clears throat> was the the concept of tribal knowledge that yeah. um you know that that's something that is worthwhile to tap into understand record document and not just out in the uh like among users but even in the lab like we have tribal knowledge as scientists in our heads and things yep. that um you know sometimes you've got to tease out from your colleagues um and it's important and to to loop back around to the raw juicing thing so first of all um did you do uh chemical analysis on the the juice to to see what what was actually being ingested no at that time i i, I got excited and i talked to other people about it but I, there was mm -hmm. a little period of my life that i didn't have direct access to a lab because yeah. of my, the, you know, I was with my partner and she did, with, focused on her yeah, <laughs> for about absolutely. a year. So, yep. uh, so I kind of passed on that topic to another. But, um, but yeah, of course, the, the acidic cannabinoids came into the spotlight around that time, and it means that there's more people looking at more interactions because terminology can be very powerful. If if you yeah. say that yep. THC is the active ingredient, and who wants to study the precursor? Who cares about the precursor? Because I'm going to smoke yeah. it up, so or I'm going to put it in a cookie. So nobody cares about THC acid. That's just the precursor. Yep. So you know the <laughs> non-usefulness is already part of the name. It's yep. a precursor to something that really cool, which is the active ingredient. So I always balked against that kind of terminology. So there's just a bunch of chemicals. They could do something or nothing. Mm -hmm. But there's also the other end of the scale. People would come to me uh, at conference and say, oh, no, what does this cannabinoid do? What does this cannabinoid do? And I would say, well, I don't know, maybe nothing. 
And then they looked right. at me completely incredulous. Like, how do you mean it does nothing? It's like, why does it all have to do something? You know, if, if you believe that, that's great, but that's called intelligent design. Then the cannabis plant is chosen and it's stuffed full of cannabinoids and they all do something and they all cure horrible diseases. And only now we find out. And, and other plants are just plants with chemicals and they do nothing. Right. If you eat a horse right. flower, I'm not going to ask you, what does this compound do? What is, it just tastes bad. That's that's the only thing it does. So and it took that was the, the time, I think, that um, science wasn't doing much. But consumers and there weren't that many producers yet. But the cannabis mm -hmm. world went a little bit overboard. Everything had to do something and had to cure something and had yeah. to be put into something. And it can never harm. Uh, and I, I think that cannabinoids may induce not do that much harm but can you imagine that cannabinoids are positive for cancer in any way or form but there's one type of breast cancer where cannabinoids suppress the immune system and you die faster wouldn't you want to know you know right. or not not every judgment you have about cannabis or cannabinoids or anything you measure is a judgment call right so that's yeah. why i always show in my presentations a picture of the the mythbusters and i say these guys are not there to judge they're there to just figure out what is plausible what's not plausible so if some cannabinoid doesn't do anything or maybe actually promoting cancer in one way or another doesn't mean that we're trying to bash cannabis yes right and yeah. i think we're now starting to come in in the decade of cannabis where we can do that a little bit more um, unbiased on on, yeah. on both sides on all sides yeah it's something that has been striking to me someone that i interviewed um some time back uh is a, a person that suffers from cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome yeah that's and one so, of them yeah. and so they they share their story and they've become a very big advocate to try to raise awareness about it and she gets a lot of hate from the industry because, yeah. under the assumption that if she's talking about a negative aspect of cannabis, then she must be secretly anti-cannabis or, oh, yes. you know, trying to influence people to think negatively about the plant. Um, and so this ties into another thing that I want to talk to you about, because in your education work that you do mm -hmm. um, a lot these days is you focus on myths around cannabis um, and, and all of these uh, perceptions that the culture kind of juggles. And so one thing I wanted to ask you are what are some of the most prevalent myths about cannabis today that you frequently encounter? Well, to stretch my brain a little bit, but one that comes immediately to the top is that it seems to be quite well accepted that different labs have different results because they're different, right? So of mm -hmm. course it's different results. So you just pick the one you like and then what's the problem with that? I said, well, can you imagine going to the gas station and then filling your 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 car up with 20 gallons or whatever, how much goes into a car these days? And then it actually, it's not 20, but it's, it's 16. You would be right. mad. What if you yeah. go buy a computer and it promises you all kinds of cool things and speed and 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 chips and 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 uh, memory and stuff and it turns out to be not true? Wouldn't you be pissed? Yeah, of course you would be pissed. What if you buy a bottle of wine and it's not twelve percent, but for all these years it happened to be nine? They just failed to tell you. Then even if you didn't get less drunk or you know nothing bad happens, you're going to be pissed because you're you're fooled as a consumer. So why is it so strange? that for cannabis and cannabis products, you want to demand a label that just is correct. I always say the simplest thing you can say about cannabis products is if it's on the label, it must be on in the product. And if it's in the product, it must be on the label. Why? Because it's normal. 
Yeah. You don't have to have any deep discussions about what's true and what's not true in conspiracy theory. Is, is it, doesn't anybody want that for everything? Because if it's not, then you just don't know what you're doing anymore. So let's start there. Uh, and I, I, and it's confusing when people believe that, you know, because I have a more modern machine, you are using HPLC with UV and I'm using MS detection and mine is hipper and cooler and I'm a university and you're not. So my numbers must be more correct. And and that's nonsense. You know, more yeah. complicated equipment needs more dedicated and, and skilled use as well. You can do more things wrong. Maybe your standards are, are not really what they're supposed to be because there's uh, some confusion there. So... So it's not okay if people start to think that that labs are different because they just invested in different directions. You know, if whether you have an analog scale or a digital scale, and if you buy digital scales from ten places, they all have to see that say that a kilo is a kilo. So, and and that is a difficult discussion to have. And and I find that if you use analogies and examples and move away from cannabis and and you try to show people. That is not just about cannabis. It's about how the world works, about bigger structures, and about what we, you know, what what you can actually test and what you cannot. Some things are just really complicated. Uh, yeah, that's worth a discussion. You know, another it is, thing. Yeah. If you think about uh, microbe testing, are you doing it with plate testing, and then you only test the living microbes, or, or are you doing it with PCR, and then you may also measure the dead microbes, and and what's the difference, and why does it matter? And then, then, of course, the added problem, especially in markets that have been a little bit older, if, if you tell Dutch people that cannabis in coffee shops may be dangerous, so we need to have a higher quality, they're going to say that but if it's so dangerous, then why do coffee shops exist? Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's they're, they're here for 45 years. So if yeah. it's so dangerous, then why didn't anybody die? Then why didn't I hear about it? You know, so how subtle is that with it? heavy metals and pesticides and, and, and mycotoxins. It's it's very gradual scale, right? It's not dead or alive. So if you undertell that story, people get a false sense of security. But if you overdo it, people start to see conspiracy theories and it's going to kick you in the butt. So you have to do it right. And that means you have to do it uh, very calm and very gradual and uh, don't go too quick. And that's yeah. the role of scientists, I think. Yeah, no, that's a, a really good point. You know, what you've just highlighted is things like pesticides, mycotoxins, whatever, and metals. These are things that typically accumulate in the body over time. And you're right, they may not kill you, but they can influence your health in all sorts of ways um, and can negatively impact your quality of life over, uh, you know, your lifespan, possibly make you more susceptible to certain diseases, possibly promote things like neurodegeneration, you know, at a faster rate than normal. But I think that even if people, if they want that, that's up mm-hmm. to them. You know, I'm not yeah. deciding for them. So if it sure. if it's there yeah. and it's on the label and you say, well, this is a more expensive brand because it's super clean and this one is not so clean yeah. because it has craps in it and residual solvents. If you want to buy it, fine. And my job as a scientist is done, but you have to understand the choice. And the rest is up to the regulators, of course. But if you don't measure, you're making rules for categories that may or may not exist. You're yep. just doing it blind. I, I would say if you don't have a lab, it's like you're trying to judge colors, but you're colorblind. Yeah. And you're trying yeah. to imagine what those colors are going to be like, but it's that's not really accurately possible. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, another thing that I wanted to talk about that just popped in my mind that I know you studied uh, that I forgot to ask you early on in the conversation. So going back to cannabis tea, I know that you you published a paper specifically looking at cannabis tea 
um, because it was such a common preparation. Um, what did you learn about the uh, chemical profile of a cannabis tea? Because there's a lot of debate over how effective a, a cannabis tea might be, given that cannabinoids are not particularly water soluble. Oh, um, indeed. Yeah, can you expand on that? Well, the first thing I learned is cannabis tea can make you extremely high <laughs> because I was in the lab making, I, I think I was focusing on one liter portions because we were mm. teaching people to make enough for a while. So you don't have to do it every single time, but you can store it. Yeah. Uh, but I was taking little 30 milliliter samples for the freeze dryer to do the you know, the final testing. And when I was pouring it down the sink for the 12th time or so, I thought, isn't it weird that I'm studying it, but I have no idea what it tastes or what it does. <laughs> so at the end of the workday, I decided to have one little cup of cannabis tea. And two hours later, it hit me like a tsunami. I was from zero to high in literally 10 seconds. It was oh, unbelievable. Wow. Very fun and a little bit scary. Um, yeah, yeah. But that kind of taught me a lesson that if you give cannabis to patients and that's new, a lot of patients are not users and they think that a tea is a mild form of using it because they're not smoking it. But mm -hmm. is that actually true? Yes, the, the cannabinoids are not water soluble, but the recommendation based on theoretical assumption by the Ministry of Health was take one gram of cannabis, put it in one liter of, so about a quart of um, boiling water and boil it for 15 minutes and ah. then filter out the cannabis. So okay. I thought, well, okay. at least they thought about heating and stuff, but is 15 minutes in boiling water, is that hot for a cannabinoid? Well, it turns out, no, cannabinoids don't care that much. That's not very hot. Eh? That's why vaporizers, they start to really work at about 150 C or more. But 100 degrees doesn't do much except blow off the terpene. So it smells great. <laughs> right. But what's in the tea? So I thought, well, what if, I, if I'm told 15 minutes, then that's the baseline. Then I follow that recipe. I have a number. But what if I don't have a precise skill in my kitchen so 1.00 gram it's not very doable at home it may be anything between 0.5 and 1.5 before the scale turns from one to two or from zero to one what if i boiling for 15 minutes and the phone rings my mom's on the phone and i forget about the time so what does that do with the composition of the tea so my my focus was not so much how do i make it as potent as possible we are trying to actually protect naive patients from too many cannabinoids it was purpose was to make it robust. So I did 5, 10, 15 minutes boiling the water, a half a gram, one gram, one and a half gram. So I did all kinds of different parameters and I found out that by coincidence, actually the recipe of the government was pretty robust. Hmm. If you boil it shorter, it becomes less potent. If you boil it longer, it doesn't become more potent. It, it either, either doesn't become more potent when you add more cannabis because it turns out that you get a saturated solution. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it stops. Uh, but if you put it in the fridge, then everything starts to stick to the glass and within a day it's just water. And this is relevant because I had heard about a research group in the University of Groningen, which is in the north of Holland. They were MS specialists and they were the first one to be brave enough to say, we're going to study this in a clinical trial setting. So they made a whole bunch of tea, oh, oh boy. stored it in the fridge and gave a bunch of patients, I think it was six patients, they gave cannabis tea for five days and they said, well, it doesn't do anything, so we proven it didn't work. And I was the only one with the knowledge that I had. I said, well, but how much tea did you make? Well, we made five liter. Where did you store it? In the fridge, right? They said, yeah, because that's recommended. So did you add anything like milk powder or, or like milk to keep things in suspension? And they said, no, because nobody said that. 
I said, well, was there a little sticky circle on the glass just above the level of the water, of the tea? They said, yeah, but we rinsed that out at the end. I said, yeah, but that's not the point. That's your active ingredient. So and you could not know that because nobody knew that, but you have yeah. to add something, even just a simple like milk powder that you use for your mm -hmm. uh, like coffee creamer powder because it's easy. Everybody has it. It's super stable, and that works. So my recommendation was follow the, the recommendations, but if you make more – Add a spoon of coffee creamer to keep it in suspension. Otherwise, after one day, you've just wasted your medicine. And then a lot of people may conclude, I tried cannabis, and the only way that I find it acceptable, I do not want to inhale. I tried, tried it as a tea, and it didn't work, so now I'm moving on. And I will not yeah. use cannabis anymore. And that's a waste. Yeah. That was the motivation for this study. Like, Let's keep people in, in the cannabis medicine world you know without making them disappointed but they don't even know why it failed right let's, let's take out these obvious mistakes well and and getting back to to you know what you were saying before of like making sure people actually have a choice so giving them good data so that the choices they make are are solid they're based on reality and not just a, a failed you know procedure uh yep. or something like that um and it's interesting what you're pointing out because i think when uh, when we first started talking about cannabis tea, probably what most people may have thought about was, you know, uh, boiling some water and then pouring it into a cup with a tea bag, you know, of cannabis in there. Um, and so your research highlighted that if you followed the recommendations that the government had set of boiling it for, uh, you said 15 minutes, is that right? Yes. Yeah. 15 minutes, boiling it for 15 minutes, um, that that's good. But maybe what uh, people would do uh, without thinking about those recommendations of just putting cannabis in a tea bag and pouring hot water over it and letting it seep for three minutes, that may not be good enough. That wouldn't work. Yeah. It was also interesting that tea contains way more THC acid than THC, but the solubility of THC acid and the other acid depends on the pH. So maybe mm -hmm. it depends on if you add other stuff. Some people like honey. Some people like to add rooibos tea or something. So it's really hard to know what people are going to do at home. And I think that's a major problem with medicinal cannabis. Uh, the way it was distributed then is that you tell people to do something, but are they going to do it? What if yeah. you tell them to not smoke it, but they smoke it anyway? Or you tell them to make tea, but they do it their special way. So, you know, you have to know something about it. So what, yes, of course, when you make tea, you're losing some of your active ingredients and your decarboxylation could have been better. But it's a trade-off with the fact that it's a very robust and self-limiting concentration because it gets saturated. So that means that people can't you know, do it right 10 times in a row and then they forget about the time. And then they're suddenly knocked off their feet because they're high. Because getting high for a lot of chronic patients is super scary. Yeah. You know, losing your mind like that and having the feeling that your your chest is going to explode. That's what happened with me with mm -hmm. the cannabis tea incident. You know, I, with all the knowledge I had about cannabis, I still thought that may, maybe I'll get a heart attack because my heart was yeah. pounding like insane. You know, so this just happens. And I think it's good to... Um, to have that 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 uh, experience sometimes, and and sometimes the scares on a completely different level. For example, I am using CBD from Holland, where you can easily get it everywhere in very mm -hmm. great looking stores. Just it's an official product, and I go on vacation to Eastern Europe or to Russia. This this actually happened. One person went to Croatia, other one went to Russia. 
they do a drug test because they don't really know what CBD oil is and it sounds kind of cannabis-y and it tests positive for THC. Is there THC in this product? Yes, there is, ma'am. There's a little bit. That's totally legal in Holland. Yes, but I'm now in a Russian jail and I'm being accused of drug smuggling. Couldn't you have told me before that this contains a trace of THC? Yeah, but the Dutch law doesn't allow that if it's below a certain level. Wow. So, you know, harm mm -hmm. can come in a lot of different ways. Yeah, well, and that's a really good point to bring up. And I think it, we would be remiss if we didn't specifically talk about this. What, other than some of the things that we just talked about, um, what are some of the real risks and harms associated with cannabis that you think people should have in their mind, you know, without without exaggerating or, or, or trying to freak people out? But, the, you know, there are some real things to make sure people are aware of. Yeah, well, the, the, of course, one is, is potency. If you think yeah. you're buying 10%, but it's actually 2%, then your product instantly became five times more expensive. So I'm scammed as a consumer. I lost money. That's not great. Second thing is maybe there's nothing in there, which happens quite a lot. So I think I'm curing myself or treating myself, but I'm actually doing nothing. And what if that's cancer? And I so trust in cannabinoids that I... I I, I choose not to have chemo, and this can be a huge uh, a drama in, in a family setting, you know, when, when your family members, please take this chemotherapy because it's 60% effective, so no, I trust cannabinoids, and then you're not actually using cannabinoids. What, what then? Or you're stuffing yourself with cannabinoids, and it doesn't work. It doesn't do anything, yeah. and it actually suppresses your immune system, so maybe you sleep better and you eat better, but you're still dying twice as fast. How would you know? You know, that's why you do clinical trials. Um, another thing is that people can spend a lot of money on these kind of treatments and they think mm -hmm. it's holistic and better, but, you know, it's not it's not covered by health insurance. So I can also see that people lose money on that, people who are not in the position to lose that much money. And then there's the contaminations, anything from some residual solvents and heavy metals to the purposefully added uh, hard drugs that are found. And this is not an incident anymore, I think. This is happening quite a bit around the world, anything from synthetic cannabinoids to, to powerful modern medicines, because then at least you have an effect from that product, so that product will become popular. Um, yep. and, and then the problems with THC contamination, it's not just that you may get stuck in Russia and then when you're lucky, in this case, they sent this woman back after two, two weeks, but she was there on vacation for family business and for actually running a company. And then what if you're told, sorry, you're not welcome for the next two years? Right. You know, that's a big price to pay for something you didn't choose purposefully. And what if you're using CBD products for your epileptic kid and it turns out to be full of THC? Maybe not last time and maybe not this time, but then suddenly next time there is a lot of THC. And this has all been tested in places like Australia and, and in the US, Canada, Germany, uh, Czech Republic. It's happening everywhere, UK. Every yep. time there's a publication about CBD and contaminations, you find stuff. And I think that has to stop. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, it's really challenging to even assess the efficacy of cannabis when some of these variables are, are at play. <laughs> I have two nice examples of, of companies. I was doing a little bit of myth busting for about a year because you know, it was it was getting out of control in Holland just mm -hmm. as anywhere else. It was one company, which is a tiny little pharmaceutical company right next to my town. Um, so I never heard of them. And they claimed that now they had discovered that, tea, it's, that CBD can come from 
orange peels. Uh, so we yes. don't yeah. so we don't need to, you know, there's another story about <laughs> hops. Uh, so to make a long story short, I, I asked them how does this work? Can't tell you. There's a patent, it's from a German company, so we can't say, okay, let me guess. You're taking some terpene, like limonene or something, from an industrial source, which indeed may come from orange peel, and you're making synthetic CBD. Is that what you're doing? And then they, you know, they shuffled around a little bit and then they ignored my email, but I kept pushing and I said, yeah, yeah, you're kind of on the right track. I said, but you said you extract it from orange peel. And they didn't think that was misleading. That was just kind of a way to communicate about this. But two weeks later, this advertisement was gone. So no orange peel at all. And the same story has been brought up by hops and other things. And people can really get scammed for years. Yeah. I think the whole yeah. hop story about the special strain of hops from, the, from the, the Himalayas, it lasted two years. People invested millions in that company. It's ridiculous. Yeah. But you know that's the damage you can do. Uh, and the other one said, well, I now have a product that is 50 times better, 52, we was very specific, specific. The bioavailability, the uptake in the intestines is 52 times higher mm -hmm. than any other product. And I've proven that in studies. So my product is worth your money. And so I called him too and I said, well, how did you do that? Because I cannot see you with your background and everything I can find. You cannot do clinical trials. So where is this done? So I also dug deeper and asked more questions. And it turned out that they had done a study on three isolated mouse intestines. So mm. an, not even in vivo, but with isolated organs. And yeah. there they found an elevated penetration of their CBD. So I said, so you didn't do it at all with humans. No, but we're planning that. So, you know, we don't know how to translate it to the market. But what we meant to say is we're on the track and so well <laughs> why don't you say it you know so there's misleading uh, information everywhere and some of it comes from labs unfortunately there's also labs that see uh, an upside to reporting consistently higher numbers so if you want high numbers they'll give it to you so everybody is a little bit involved and, and there's forces and counter forces on every level yeah. uh, but as a consumer you can't see any of that the only thing you yep. see is that glass jar in the store with a price tag yep um so and the marketing language that gets shared you know yeah, all over yeah. social media in a matter of days yeah, yeah. um and yeah it, it takes years to, to yeah. counter that it's kind of a challenge to take the lid off and to take people into this wild wonderland of of stuff that happens in the cannabis industry without having the attention to make cannabis or the industry look bad. I'm happy that it's here and I think cannabis presents a whole new way we can do medicine with cannabis and many other psychedelic plants and products maybe in the future. But I also think that what we do now sets the tone because I'm yes. already getting some requests, some consulting requests, and I read stories about um magic mushrooms yeah mm -hmm. what about their medicinal uh, potency what about varieties in mushrooms what about growing it under gmp uh and the same is happening with ayahuasca and and other kinds of plant-based uh, psychedelics that were fully illegal but mm -hmm. i i would not like all the mistakes of the cannabis industry see it come back in like double speed triple yeah. speed fast forward in these other industries because it's going to make a few people rich and it's going to cripple the industry as a whole. And then maybe in December, the United Nations will vote CBD a new narcotic and then we get stricter instead of more open because we let the industry play without restrictions for about 10 years. Yeah. And I mean, in psychedelics, you don't have the wiggle room you have with cannabis. You know, if, if things go wrong, 
um, they go wrong in a big way that is very um, impactful in the moment. Um, and well, yeah. Well, go just ahead. think about it. What if I'm a CBD producer and I say, you know what? This stuff doesn't harm anyone. You know, just use it for everything, and it's good for uh, kids and old people and, and and dogs, and so there's nothing to be worried about. Um, but at the same time, it can cure cancer and, and 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 epilepsy in kids. And when you're dying, it does all kinds of great stuff. So you're saying at the same time, it doesn't do anything. Just leave me alone. And right. at the same time, you're saying this is a this is a medicine that works when everything else fails. Yep. So it's potent and it's harmless at the same time. That's just not possible. Yep. So I think it's okay if you market CBD, but then no claims in a very dilute form, and then you can put it in some stuff, and it's like echinacea or valerian root, or it is potent and powerful, and then it has to be regulated like a medicine. You can't have it both ways. Yeah, I mean, that's 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 the thing. When you start getting into the world of medical claims and all of that, you you open up a door into, you know, you you have to standardize, you have to know quality, you have to do clinical studies. Um, and, and not even just, you know, something that I talked about with the guest recently was you have to do studies on your active compounds and, and the formulation itself. Mm -hmm. But you also have to understand the non-target, the quote-unquote non-active components um, of the formulation, depending on how you've made it. And what do those things do? And are those things toxic? And, you know, I think there's a very deep belief uh, among a, a large group of, of people who like and support cannabis that and, and that believe is cannabis can't do any harm. And that, that's, I think, a consequence of all these decades of misinformation and governments yeah. trying to push it you know, to a point where it's almost ridiculous. And now we know. So now for the next 10, 20 years, we will not trust any official source saying anything mm -hmm. bad about cannabis. It's kind of a rebound situation, right? But um, yep. why would cannabis be always harmless and 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 only be good for you there's there's no such thing in this world so i always found it a little bit stunning it's almost religious uh so i i come always back to intelligent design somehow the cannabis plant is chosen uh, and can do things that nothing else can not even other plants and i just think that's very unlikely but i hope it's true i hope cannabis cures cancer i'm just not convinced it is a challenge and interesting to try to like lift the lid on all the stuff that's happening in the cannabis industry worldwide uh, and, and showing yeah. out the things that are not working well and the, and the scams and the problems that are out there without taking down cannabis as a medicine in general. I, I think cannabis creates uh, great new opportunities to do clinical research, to interact with patients, to create new medicines that are much needed. Uh, but there's a whole bunch of people, organizations and companies that are not doing so well, maybe not even intentionally. Yeah. But um, so, so how do you show the good and the bad at the same time? And I think that is something I'm always very aware of and try to be very uh, cautious with. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's why sometimes when I'm with patients, I, I defend government standards. But when I'm with the government, I'm defending, you know, experiences by groups of patients versus clinical trials. Why do clinical trials always need to trump everything? So I think basically what cannabis does, it, it, it takes the pipeline of medicine development where a scientist develops something, a company created, patents it and makes a product and the authorities allow you to use it in the first place. And then a physician or a prescriber allows you as a patient to use it. But you know, you're at the mercy of all those guys and all those different roles and you're just lucky to get it because you're sick. 
you know, yeah. and it creates a situation where patients may think, but wait a minute, this is about me. I am sick. Why are you making all these choices for me? And cannabis, what it does, what it has done is it just goes straight through like an icebreaker. It didn't care about any of those things. It started with patients and then everybody jumped on board. So now they have to sit around the table instead of passing things on in the pipeline. And, and I think human society is just not used to that. Yeah. Patients talking with 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 physicians and then the physicians actually listening to be inspired for future studies like oh wait a minute what <laughs> <laughs> yeah what or, is this brave new world we're stepping or into companies being involved in making regulations to regulate themselves like wait a minute we don't do that you know so there's always an a picking order yeah and cannabis as a medicine changes that picking order and i think it could be if we do it well it could last for a while and open up a whole new way of finding and developing new medications yeah, I, I totally agree. And I really appreciate your um, perspective and approach to this that, you know, we're, we're trying to understand what's real and what's true. And we're not trying to bash what people are saying. We're not trying to invalidate people's experiences with cannabis. And likewise, we're not trying to uh, take, you know, what's published in a research paper that's been peer reviewed and say that that's the gospel um and you know that we ignore everything else i think that's such an important stance and it's one reason why i i like a lot of your education work and and that you're focused in education because that's that's so needed yeah education uh, i think one of the things you you you've then mentioned uh, or you you mean is uh, the master class medicinal cannabis which i set up yeah. in 2011 and it takes a whole week it's face to face it's a small group of selected people selected for their diversity in 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 countries where they come from but also their level of education their their uh, connection with cannabis everything from users to to physicians to scientists to government people because in such a diverse group especially when you're stuck for a week and you have to have dinner and lunch together you know stuff comes out uh, yep. and and I love to see how people are maybe a little bit more combative or, or they all agree in the beginning and then it changes because they realize there's just a lot of nuance yep. um, and that's how education becomes a little bit of uh, like bringing up I'm not saying that right the thing with cannabis is you you can't just tell people what you know because they're not blank. If you tell people something that they don't know, they're going to say, oh, this guy knows a lot about it. So let's listen. I'm learning something new. And you put it in your memory and it's a new piece of the puzzle. But with cannabis, everybody, even my grandmother, even my little cousin, everybody thinks they know something about cannabis from TV, from movies, from mm -hmm. education, propaganda, all kinds of sources from the coffee shops. Um, but none of those pictures is complete. So if you want to teach somebody about cannabis, you have to deconstruct something first without making mm -hmm. them mad and, and, and offensive. Um, and then you have to feed them the new knowledge and it takes time. You know, you have to let them say what they like, what they don't like, what they've observed, why they think that that's true. And only then by exploring together, you can, you can really learn. So half the course is taking down <laughs> and the other half is, is building up again. And then you see that most of your building blocks are still there. They're just, reshuffled a little bit and i think that's mm -hmm. what can pe give people the confidence that okay i'm not wrong but yet there it's different than i thought so right yes. it's about not having to lose and having to say okay fine i was wrong 50 years of my life nobody wants that <laughs> yeah exactly and I, I think um as an educator taking that responsibility of 
facilitating the discussions in a way that helps people not think in those terms of right and wrong, mm-hmm. but a but a perpetual pursuit of understanding. And your your understanding can mature over time, and it should. I mean, there's an old quote. I'll mess it up, but there's an old quote that I like <laughs> a lot. That's like, if you're if you've never changed your mind, then uh, you're a fool. Uh, because I mean, yeah. you have to change. You have to change your mind um, as you learn. Um, otherwise, you're stuck in your original position. Um, new, new new information needs to go somewhere. If it goes into the same old letterbox, then uh, you may as well learn nothing, and then you already figured the world out when you're twelve. <laughs> That's unlikely. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, it's super fascinating hear about hearing about your education work because uh, you and I are parallel in a lot of ways. Um, obviously, you've done so much work that I've not had the opportunity or been able to touch. But as far as how we approach education and like this class that you're discussing, one of the ways that I got into doing the work I'm doing now is coming out of the lab, I put together sort of a, a workshop that mimicked what I wanted to see at college level survey cannabis science class look mm-hmm. like and, and it's very similar like i my goal was to get people in person understand why they're passionate about learning and how to facilitate discussions and connect them with good research a lot of your research and and how to think more um i even hesitate to use this word because people take it the wrong way but more maturely to to think you know uh to be able to put some of our biases aside and just talk and explore ideas and come to some some new ground, uh, a new foundation to work from. Yeah, the, I don't know if it's a bad choice maturely. It, it, it definitely rings with me. And part of that is by taking down barriers. You know, and a great example is when I was doing my, um, my test of CBD products. So I asked 40 people that I knew and, and that I got to know for this project, can you send me your, uh, your CBD uh, a product because I want to know what's in it. I want to know if it's the same yeah. or different, if there's THC or not. And as a reward, I'll give you free testing data because that's not mm-hmm. something you can easily get. And there were, of course, people that didn't agree with with the test that I did. And they, they said, no, you say <laughs> that my product is 1%, but I'm pretty sure it's 10 because I made it myself or I bought it from a really reliable person. So of instead course. of going into a discussion, it's like, you know what? Bring your sample, bring another sample, come to the lab. We're going to do it together. I'm at a university. Mm-hmm. I'm allowed to have you in the lab. Maybe I'm not 100% allowed, but you know, I'm just not going to ask anyone. <laughs> so come over. We'll do it together. You can see from beginning to end what I'll do. And I'll explain everything. I'll write everything down on a piece of paper. You can calculate with me. So I'll show you what happened. And it seriously yep. turned out that somebody made a, a, a calculation mistake and they diluted their product too much. And they said, oh, Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm not so good at math. That's true. So, you know, the problem wasn't at all where you thought it was. So this person was much happier because now he knew how to make 10% oil because, yeah, 10 divided by 10 is 1, and I found 1. So you made a great product. You're just not good at math. So, you know, that is mature too, I think, without – Yeah. Absolutely. At least politically mature. If you look at political discussions, you always – if you're not winning, you're losing. And I think we have to get rid of that idea if you're not above somebody you're below it and that has to do with the pipeline of medicine development i'm important because i'm the regulator and you have to follow my rules which is true most of the time in the real world but i think cannabis provides different ways to get to the same goal if we want clinical data then a clinical trial is not the only way you can get there you know it's just one we know very well but what else could we do and I, i find it exciting to come up with different paths to the same 
endpoint. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, um, it's almost like uh, being a, a a scout or a map maker. <laughs> yeah, you know, and we can get attached to something. So if Sativa and Indica wouldn't be real things, then we call them Jupiter and Saturn. Who cares? You know, now you're right. yeah. now you're opposing it because you like Sativa <laughs> and Indica and it has a meaning. But in ten years, we've forgotten all about that, and we'll use the new terms as long as they're useful, as long as we can explain what is the purpose they serve and are they you know more accurate than what we've been doing so far so that means that there's a little bit give and take on all sides yes yeah yeah absolutely uh well i know we've been going for just close to two hours here so i <laughs> i don't i want to be respectful of your time and, and not keep you much longer but to to kind of wrap things up here um the last question that i'll pose to you um and then i'll hand the platform over to you to, to close out is um what currently in the cannabis and cannabinoid science world has you uh, is sort of um, has your excitement peaked? Um, what research um, are you interested to follow over the, the next several years? And then um, after you address that, I will also just hand the platform over to you to let people know how to learn more about your master classes and any of your other work. And pretty much anything else you want to share with our listeners before we sign off? That's a big platform. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, one of the things I'm involved with now is what uh, what we call the Legal Cannabis Coalition. So I worked mm -hmm. at Bedrican for 10 years, and, and then we decided to say goodbye to each other for multiple reasons. So I was a consultant, uh, but mm -hmm. one with a large network. And it means that if I'm serving clients, and I can pass them on to a whole bunch of experts in, in the rest of the field. But one of the things that also happened is that I started to notice that Holland was often overlooked as a country where exciting cannabis things happened because we're just not that big. There's one licensed producer. Our medical program isn't giant. We don't produce tons and tons and tons of cannabis. So I realized that there's a lot of specialized companies in Holland that do everything from building greenhouses for cannabis growers to watering installations to laboratory services, uh, making uh, clinical trial medication and things like that. But each of them by themselves were too small to be noticed in the in the big scheme of things. So we decided, why don't we put them all under one umbrella and, and do some of our own research and also act as one group. So that would be called the Legal Cannabis Coalition. And one of the things we're doing in, in collaboration with the University of Wageningen, which is a very world famous agricultural university, one in the, of the top 10 in the world, um, they are allowed and able to do um, cannabis uh, cultivation trials. And they're doing it for research fully legal, but they're not allowed to bring anything to the market. It can be sold to any single person. Mm -hmm. So the fun thing is, if you're not selling to the market, you can make mistakes on purpose. And <laughs> yes. any LP would never do that, maybe on a tiny little scale, but definitely not repeated three times with controls all around. It's just too, too much money. It's too much time, and it doesn't do anything for your business. So we're able to look at LED lights, about different nutrients, and about different pest control methods. And one of the things that have We've been doing that for almost three years now. So we're in our seventh cultivation round. It just finished. And one of the things that we can't get a handle on, but it appears that almost nobody in the world can get a handle on, is botrytis. Mm. It's um, it's a fungus that is in the air. It's always there. You can't get rid of it. It bugs a lot of other uh, agricultural plants as well. But we don't know where it comes from, and we don't know what to do about it in cannabis. And entire crops are lost. Entire greenhouses have to be burned and slashed down because of botrytis. So one of the things we're trying to do by 
monitoring the, uh, monitoring the, the, the climate conditions, putting all kinds of probes and cameras and, and, and sensors on these flowers, um, controlling water flow, humidity. So basically, it's like a high-tech patient stuffed with sensors. But the problem is, if you have a thousand plants, you don't know which one is going to get botrytis. Could be any, could yeah. be none, could be all. <laughs> so which one are you going to point your cameras on? You don't have a thousand cameras because they're expensive. So, you know, there's a little bit of cat and mouse game going on with mm -hmm. the botrytis. And now I have an idea that, that there's a key somewhere in the terpenes because we have noticed, and I think many growers have noticed, some cultivars always get botrytis, some of them never, almost never. Why is that? Is it like immune system? And if it's immune system, then what compounds are responsible? And I'm starting to zoom in on specific terpenes. I don't know which ones and how many and what ratio, but something's going on. And I would have a dream that you can figure it out and you can create a, an effective and, and, and very harmless treatment for botrytis uh, contamination in cannabis. Fascinating. Yeah. And that has such a a huge um, impact on so many cultivators. Uh, I mean, like you said, um, and so going back to this idea of practical research as well, um, that is super, super practical <laughs> on so well, on so many levels. If you connect it to earlier research, it's a good question, but I don't know because yeah. you need lots of data points and, and every individual LP don't, doesn't have enough data. But if you right. combine it, do indicas or sativas have different sensitivities for botrytis? You know, like real extreme, not the mixed ones, because then it's hard to say. Yeah. But but the extreme sativas and the indicas is one of the more vulnerable, because then again, maybe it translates to terpenes or maybe even grow hormones. So right, and then you can well, close I, the loop, uh, you know, in a different way. And it makes you also ask questions about um, the effects that breeding techniques have on these the resiliency that the plants have, because there's some some work's already been done that has shown that. Um, as you breed for higher THC levels, you often um, lose natural resistance to powdery mildew, for instance. Yeah, yeah, could um, be. Yeah, uh. And so it'd be interesting to look at it on a genetic level, too. Once you kind of have a sense of what might be influencing those dynamics, then you can start to look at the enzymes, look at the the genes responsible for product producing. I, I think things. what we're saying here uh, in a different way, you and me, is that we need lots of data points, which means that we need to collaborate. It means that everybody has yeah. to share data and then we put it in statistical programs in an industry that is notoriously bad at sharing anything. Yep. So I think that's uh, the, the big data coming to cannabis, but it doesn't mean big data inside your own LP, it means big data mm -hmm. and data patterns in the world of cannabis, not just the US, not just Canada, but just mm -hmm. everywhere. And who's going to do that? And how are you going to make that happen with all the legal restrictions and, and, and business restrictions that are yep. in place today? So um, I think we still have uh, at least 10 years uh, work ahead of us. Yeah, yeah. Before it, it becomes yeah. a standard. <laughs> Absolutely. And as as we've seen, it's, it's not a linear uh, trajectory either. Um, we take steps forward and back and forward and back as we ride this roller coaster towards uh, new regulatory models and uh, uh, new industries. And um, so, yeah, it's it's going to be fascinating. And I, and I think this all ties up our conversation uh, really nicely, highlighting what we can do if we can put aside biases, if we can standardize some things so yep. that we can have common reference points and be able to compare data, 
draw more meaningful conclusions, and ultimately just continue to do things better. I mean, from the world of, of quality systems, it's all about continuous improvement. <laughs> yep. How do we continue to improve um, as we move into the future? But I like to emphasize it's not rocket science. And, and you know, very soon in the near future, everybody can grow cannabis of a decent level, but it's going to be super yep. cheap and you're not going to make a lot of money. And everybody can make things out of it. You know, making CBD oil is also not rocket science. So that just means what's left behind is that you have to make a hundred choices. So are you going to do it this way or that way? And so there, yep. there need to be good steps. It's not going to be tough, but it's going to be, uh, you have to be responsible. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, awesome. Well, Arno, thanks so much for spending the past couple of hours talking to me. This was um, as enjoyable as I expected it to be. I mean, when we talked on the phone before doing the interview, um, we we seem to hit it off pretty well, and this is just a, a nice continuation Absolutely. of that. So I really appreciated the the good conversation, and um, I hope that in the future we can reconnect and talk even more about some of this stuff. Um, I would hope so, too. There's uh, lots of extra and more topics to talk about. If you want to know oh, more yeah. about my work, I've created one website, a very simple one, where everything comes together. It's uh, info. And there you can find the news about my publications. A lot of them are on there about training, about consulting and other things. So, uh, and I'd love to be approached for uh, interviews and uh, other kinds of uh, interactions. Perfect. Awesome. Well, yeah, everyone listening, uh, go check out his website. It's very well designed as well. It's got a very nice um, um, sort of simple presentation that makes it very easy to find stuff. And, and you can see what I look like uh, as a cartoon. <laughs> exactly. As an avatar. Yeah. <laughs> That's my favorite part. Yeah. yeah, I need to get one of those, figure out what I look like <laughs> as an avatar. Well, uh, yeah, thanks so much, everyone that's listening. Uh, thanks so much for, for tuning in and listening to this conversation. If you want to learn more about Curious About Cannabis, you can go to cacpodcast.com uh, or find us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, primarily active on Instagram. Um, but yeah, thanks so much. This has been a great conversation and I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Thank you, Jason. And a great day for the audience. Uh, hope we'll speak again. I think too. so. Okay. Yes. All right. Take it easy and bye-bye. Bye-bye. If you want to learn more about cannabis, check out the Curious About Cannabis book on amazon.com and other major online book retailers. To support the show and get access to an exclusive members-only podcast feed, access to private events, merchandise discounts, and more, visit www.patreon.com slash curious about cannabis.